Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For most people on earth, responsibility is the incorrect attribution of things that justify unhappiness in life and unhappiness that we are willing to hand out based on our belief that people had control over things that which they did not. That's most of the human experience. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators, Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Unlikely collaborators, the only way forward is inward. Later on in this episode, I'll talk a lot more about the Perception Box and how it relates to this episode. But right now, let me tell you about today's guest. Today, we welcome Robert Sapolsky to the show. Robert is Professor of Biology and Neurology at Stanford University and a research associate with the Institute of Primate Research at the National Museum of Kenya. His research has been featured in the National Geographic documentary Stress, Portrait of a Killer. At age 30, Robert received the MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant. He is author of Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, a primate's memoir, The Trouble with Testosterone, and Monkey Love. His latest book is called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. In this episode, I talked to Robert Sapolsky about life without free will. Humans like the idea of having control over their lives, but Robert asserts that free will is just an illusion. Robert argues that life beyond free will may sound unpleasant, but explains the profound consequences of this belief in reforming the justice system, meritocracy, and education. We also touch on the topics of philosophy, quantum physics, mindfulness, grit, and responsibility. Wow. This was such an incredibly exciting conversation with one of my intellectual heroes and just being able to chat with him and freestyle and arm wrestle a little bit about the nature of free will is very exciting for me. Even though we have different definitions of free will, 
as you'll see when you listen to this conversation, we don't agree on everything. I really have the deepest amount of respect for him. And I encourage you to weigh in on your own thoughts on this conversation in the comments. I'd love to hear what you think. This is a really important topic and whatever your belief on it, I think that this topic needs to be supported by evidence and logic. So without further ado, I bring you this really stimulating and enriching conversation with Robert Sapolsky. Well, I've been really been looking forward to this for a long time, this chat. And as Thanks. A, yeah, as a fellow cognitive scientist, I feel like we can really nerd out today. You know, this is not going <laughs> to, this doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, a, a media interview where they just ask the questions and you answer them. You know, <laughs> okay. uh, I really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I bet you'd like a break from that <laughs> anyway. So I wanted to start off by understanding a little bit about your own the own links in the causal chain that, that, that led up to you even being interested in free will to begin with? Well, I think I mentioned somewhere in the book, yeah, I did. I was 14 when I decided uh, that none of this made any sense. I, I had, oh, you know, early adolescence, some sort of angsty crisis of things converging and turmoil and tumult and all that. And one night I woke up like at two in the morning and I said, oh, I get it. That's why there's no God. And then like shortly after that, and there's no free will. And then, and it's, it's a totally empty and different universe. <laughs> so uh, that kind of came in this epiphanal moment. So I've been quite convinced of this ever since. And I realized for the book, I discovered some of the notes I was vaguely referring to I had taken in college. So I've been like thinking about this stuff for a long time. You have, you have, you know, you got interested in biology for a reason as well. What do you think like really attracted you to that level of analysis? There I'm going to, uh, diverge from that a bit. And that I think it was just purely emotional you know, my mother took me to the Museum of Natural History in New York all the time. And we went into the primate exhibit and something just clicked. Something just imprinted this famous stuffed mountain gorilla there who was shot by some grand old naturalist in 1912 and stuffed. Just It was just something emotional. It just resonated. I, I want to live inside those dioramas. <laughs> so- it was only sort of by college that kind of the scientific bits and pieces for it began to fall into place. Beautiful. Well, I've been a longtime follower of your work, and I show your videos in my class at Columbia. I show this one video of you talking about dopamine, where you say, uh, and there's no rat on earth that will press <laughs> <laughs> for an afterlife. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm t- we're weird. We're yeah. a very weird species. We are weird, which, which actually I think is a good segue into the topic of free will. You have this, this quote, which I think just, it summarizes the whole book. We are nothing more or less than the cumulative biological and environmental luck over which we had no control that has brought us to any moment. And so do you think that leads to the conclusion that we have zero free will? If having to edit for length, um, I had to turn that sentence to four words. It's completely obvious. It's there's no free will. Mm. In 
I think the thing, maybe the fact that I'm kind of half neurobiologist and half primatologist. So the two different realms has had me, the primatology, I actually have to talk to ecologists now and then an evolutionary biologist and the neuro people, I'm like hanging with molecular biologists. I think I, as a result, sort of inadvertently stumbled into having a respect for more different disciplinary approaches to Mm. the science stuff. And I think the critical point is, okay, a behavior has occurred. It's wonderful. It's awful. It's in between blah, blah. Why did it happen? Which neurons just did that a second ago? That's good to figure out. But what sensory stimuli in the prior minute prompted those neurons and what hormone levels this morning made that brain more or less sensitive to those stimuli? And what about previous three months? And were you traumatized or stimulated? And adolescence and childhood and fetal life and genes and culture and ecology and eventually evolution. And I think the key thing in there is that saying you've got to look at all of those is not because someone would study the literature on supposedly how... So you look at that and it's not just, whoa, I've just like spent 14 years studying the behavior genetics. And you know what? Yeah, it influences, it modulates, it's all of that. But you sure can't say that it disproves free will because there's this hole in the adoption studies, or you get somebody who's an endocrinologist, or and you go through each of those. It's not that you could then say, ooh, somebody identifies a hole in one of these disciplinary approaches. But thank God ecologists could answer that. Or you don't believe that, like, fetal environment does this or that, but, you know, sociologists have here that plugs the hole. That's not the point. The most critical point is so you sit there, and the reason why you got to look at all these different disciplines is not because, ooh, each one has a fatal limitation, it's explanatory power, and you can't rule out free will just based on being an endocrinologist or just whatever. But whoa, the people who study this other field, they can plug that hole. So you get enough of these disciplines that we could plug all the holes. That's not the point. Overwhelmingly, the point is these are not all different disciplines. They're all one. By definition, if you're talking about genes you're talking about evolution. And you're also talking about whatever proteins you made in your brain this morning. If you're talking about yesterday's hormone levels, you're also implicitly talking about what your fetal environment was when you were constructing your glands and how reactive. It's all one continuous set of influences. And when you look at that, it's just this one big, magnificent arc of environment and biology, blah, blah. When you look at it, there's not a damn crack anywhere in that arc that you can shoehorn in something happening that is independent of all that stuff. Mm. That in some ways, the no, 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 it's not a multidisciplinary approach. This is all the same thing and there's no space in there. Well, I think you did uh, an excellent job in your book of taking down the magical free will argument that we somehow have some sort of magical free will. And I think that, you know, that you did a really great job of that. And I think that there are certain compatibilists 
who needed to hear that for sure. <laughs> um, I think I'm a flavor of compatibilist that that's still, you know, that's on board with you, but I also think that there's multiple ways to define the term free will. Yeah, I'm a little oh. more flexible. And <laughs> okay, define, Let, yeah. let's go at it then. But, um, what, well, let, yeah, what's, no, what's, no. what's your definition? Well, the first thing I have a question about, and, and this is really just for my sake of understanding, not fighting, <laughs> but <laughs> understanding, for us to understand each other. You know, in the, who who is the we? There, there feels like a little bit of like a crypto dualism in here. If we are biological, look, both of us can agree that we're biological, that we are biological organisms. But as a biologist, don't you agree that we're biological control systems? And is not the whole purpose of biological control systems feedback and homeostasis in organisms to control their survival and reproduction? Oh, absolutely. So, so then, yes. Yeah, so, okay, good. Okay, we're there. Yeah. <laughs> we agree there. Yeah, okay. yeah. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. You know, if we are nothing more than our brain processes, you know, we're prediction machines where we are goal-directed machines. So we, we do have some innately built goal directions that are not completely influenced by external constraints. I suppose that your perspective seems to me like a very, and tell me how I'm wrong, but it feels to me like a very behaviorist sort of interpretation of the we part well the we is somewhere between like almost acceptable metaphor and tongue-in-cheek like mm. all all the like if you're a social biologist or evolutionary psychologist you'll be sitting there saying okay so what does a prairie vole want to do at that point in this circumstance and then they like feel obliged to say of course, when we say, what does the variable want? It doesn't actually want it, but over the course of evolution, it's been sculpted by exigencies of selection, and, and that this is not a conscious process. We're just using it as a shorthand. And when you really unpack it, we, me, I, is just as much of a shorthand because it would be a pain in the neck at that point to instead say, well, when I say me, I actually mean the concatenation of gene environment, nonlinear, it's a shorthand. There's no me in there that's anything more than like the emergent outcome of all the little pieces there. And it rarely makes sense anymore to try to understand me-ness by just looking at the little constituent parts, but that's all it's made of. You know, when you look at what humans want out of free will, I think we have it. You know, we have, I mean, I, I think the magical free will thing confuses people sometimes. Human biological organisms really care about their ability to change goals to, well, to change. You do, you definitely talk about change and, and, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. They want to be able to make decisions. They want to feel like they have some sense of choice. You know, the idea of, of choice in your model is also, uh, is really interesting because it, it the question is, how, well, how do you define the word choice? What's your working definition of choice? Let's start there so we can be in the same terms. Okay. Just to be totally, totally in your face, choice is the erroneous belief that you were the agent oh. Of, oh my gosh. of a, a, okay. a okay. change in your behavior and or taste just now. I mean, because, okay, evolution. So we're just going to live in that bucket for a while here. What's the job of all organisms? It's the drive towards reproduction, individual selection, passing copies of their genes. And that's just like innate, it's fundamental. I mean, that like vines are thinking that way when they're strangling fig trees or something. They just want to have more babies and have that. Well, this is just an eight. 
But then you get like people in the Shakers who went extinct because they all chose to be celibate. Or like, oh, but don't forget kin selection. You can also maximize your reproductive success by uh, also investing in the reproductive success of your relatives as a function of their degree of relatedness. And that's why like plants cooperate with each other based on like surface proteins and their degree of relatedness reflected in that. And that's why baboons, all they think about is, are you like my cousin or not? And that's us. That's, can you, kinship terms, like all anthropologists have been doing for centuries are kinship terms, because that's just like giving the cultural frosting on your evolutionary innateness. And then you have somebody who, who adopts a kid from the other side of the planet. And that just goes down the tubes of the notion that, well, I think what we've just, what I just inadvertently did was go through, there's the hole in anyone who says evolution of behavior just proves free will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are holes. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you admitted earlier that, you know, it was actually an interesting segue in the beginning because we talked about, you know, rat lever presses and how there is something uniquely human about about human decision making, you admitted that you know, like humans are. Don't you think that that human organisms are decision making machines? And do you not think that an organism is a causal nexus where some of the at least some of the fully causally determined processes can reasonably be described as choices, at least? But he sounds like you're saying no, no, no. no. I mean, I mean, if if okay. a, if a, if a if a ball rolls down a hill as a result of it all of the molecules inside it are turning over and over and over. Wow. Look at that causality. That but we have a lot built in. That's a very behaviorist uh, sort of way of treating humans. Well, it's <laughs> We're not a, a black it, box. It, <laughs> We're not a black no. box. And in fact, the more we open up the black box, the more clearly we can see the gears. Gears in a way where like, you know, Descartes goes out the window with anything about like organisms as machines, but gears like enough to get 30,000 people show up society for neuroscience meeting each year because they're so intent on how complicated the damn gears are. And that's not even talking to like the political scientists or, but yeah, all that opening up the black box does is show the mechanisms. And what it also shows is the power of stuff that we never even suspected was there. And on a certain level, the last 500 years of Western culture could be described as people saying over and over, wow, I had no idea biology had something to do with that. that that's a little bit uh, of a monomaniacal way of looking at uh, human history, but that we've just been learning that over and over and over. And somewhere in there, you look at the deceptions and self-deceptions with which the world has worked in the past until people figured out, oh, I had no idea biology had something to do with it. And we've done that. We're doing it right now. We're looking at you know people with a certain variant of the leptin gene, mm. no matter how damn much they want to will themselves to have willpower they're going to be obese, as has been every member of their family. And we sit there and then attribute agency and choice when it's just mechanism. I think what runs through all this 
And the sense that an awful lot of the, the compatibilist philosophers, when you really read closely what they're saying, what they're saying is, oh, God, there better be free will because what a bummer it's going to be otherwise. So this is why there's free will. You know, I'm being snarky there. But when you consider how much all of us operate on that, you know, there's an entire literature in evolutionary biology about the evolution of our ca capacity for self-deception. Because like reality is quite a drag sometimes. And I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I think that it's totally fair. By the way, anyway, everyone hearing the chainsaw massacre that's occurring right now, uh, just no, just go with it with us. Go, we hear, we hear it. Yes, we hear it. But we're we're safe. Robert's safe, right? Uh, <laughs> you got some, you got some compa angry compatibilist out there. Trying right. to, but I, but I, you know, I'm not an angry compatibilist. I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for your project. It's it's one of those things where like. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then they're like the very last step. I'm like, not with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I have a lot of sympathy for you saying, you know, the, the, you know, just one could just sit, you could have just simply said, we have a lot less control. So much of it's an illusion, you know, on the role of unconscious processes is, is so great. And even our conscious processes, we think we're, we made those decisions, you know, that we, but, but, to give us like no <laughs> wiggle room whatsoever. That's the step. That's the that, that's where we're zooming in here. That's what we're zooming in here. Yeah. And you're right. Like if I'm trying to be a good dinner guest or something, right. I'll I'll do the a whole lot less. And we really need to reform the criminal justice system. And it's really egregious that like three quarters of my Stanford undergrads come from wealthy families, and like something's something's right. No, there's nothing there at all. And when you're saying that's the point where you say, no, no, I, I'm that way 99% of the time also. I constantly mm -hmm. react in life as if I believe in agency and have a whole lot of faith in my own and have a lot of self-congratulatory instincts about my own sense of agency. But it's not the case. And every, every now and then I manage not to be a hypocrite. And it takes a lot of work and it lasts for a few seconds before I lapse back into being a person of my place and time. It's very interesting. Um, different people throughout the course of human history have come to different conclusions. About, a lot of very smart people, you know, have come to very different conclusions about this. William James, you know, uh, who uh, I know that you've had bouts of depression. He had a lot of bouts of depression. He has the famous quote, my first act of free will will be to believe in free will. That's uh, one of his famous quotes. <laughs> your dog likes your dogs. They oh, like that. They like they that. They love William James. They, they must be big. They must be big William James fans. <laughs> they mostly just like the beard. Very imprinted. William James. Yes. You know, hooray for him. And all that's happened is it's become clearer. And just to really like, put the uh, uh, earth on our shoulders, weighing us down. All that has happened is a stronger and stronger moral imperative to act this way. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll definitely get to all this, the implications for moral responsibility, et cetera. I want to stay on the, the, that initial assertion for a second before we get to all the implications. I am so excited to announce that registrations are now open for our self-actualization coaching intensive. 
While the coaching industry has taken great strides over the years toward integrating more evidence-based coaching approaches, there is still a lot of work to be done. Many coach training programs still lack strong foundations in science and do little to incorporate research-informed tools, methodologies, or approaches for helping clients thrive. For 20 years, I've dedicated my career to rigorously testing ways to unlock creativity, intelligence, and our potential as human beings. Now, for the first time ever, I have compiled some of my greatest insights to bring the new science of self-actualization to the field of professional coaching. This immersive three-day learning experience will introduce you to self-actualization coaching, an approach intended to enhance your coaching practice by offering you evidence-based tools and insights from my research that will equip you to more effectively help your clients unlock their unique potential. Don't miss out on this unique opportunity. Join us and take your coaching practice to the next level. Go to sacoaching.org. That's sacoaching.org. I look forward to welcoming you in December. So what's wrong? Tell me what's wrong with saying that we, quote, we, as a bunch of brain processes. See, it's funny. Some people might say you're being really reductionist, reductionistic, but I would say you're not being reductionistic enough. <laughs> Look, if, if all we exactly. are are a bunch of brain, brain processes that control, quote, ourselves as a physical organism, well, obviously the brain processes were influenced by their genes and entire developmental history. I give that to you. But aren't they still... <laughs> The physical processes that are causally producing behavior in the present, even in the proximal link of the causal chain, are you denying that? No, of course oh, that's... <laughs> I think because 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 this is why I say that, and I'm so glad that at least we can you know, <laughs> agree on that. Because I think that's the kind of free will, the kind of free will worth wanting, or that most people actually want. Okay. Um... But just to take the wind out of my agreeing, I'll then okay, say, okay. but that conceives nothing. <laughs> I, I think what, what we've come into here are the different definitions of free will. And That's right. society is perfectly happy to function on some very proximal definitions of free will. That's right. All the legal system is built around is when that person did that, did they intend to? Did they understand what the consequences would be? And did they realize they had alternative options? And if the answer is like all of that, they intended to do it, it's guilty. And they even thought about it three seconds beforehand. So it's premeditated guilt. And all the people who have spent 40 years like futzing over Libet and the Libet experiments, what they're essentially asking is, you know, science equivalent to the same courtroom one, which is when that first person first decided they had an intent to do something, had their brain already decided, oh my God, let's fight over milliseconds and what our, what our measurement assays can actually tell us with what resolution. And the problem in both cases is, I think, the, the, the metaphor I use in there in the book is that's the reviewing a movie based on its last three minutes because the courtroom and the libit obsessives are never asking where did that intent come from in the first place? Because that's ultimately the only question you can ask. Because if you really want to understand this human stuff, we've got to be able to explain not just why did this kid show up from Psych 101 and do this experiment for Libet to press the button, but why didn't they steal the laptop on the way out? Why weren't they in prison that day instead because 
they were like fetal alcohol syndrome. Why were they not able to do that? Because they were actually like in a village in Mauritania evading a warlord. Where did that intent come from? And in some ways, I think what shows that like if you start with intent, you're missing at least 97% of it is you can't wish for what you're going to wish for yet. And you can't intend to intend something and you can't think of what you're going to think for yet. Think next. And you can't will yourself to have more willpower. And all of those are more obscure ways of saying that's what intent is made of. And there's no volition in there in the slightest because there's an explanation why the kid didn't steal the laptop or isn't dead in Somalia. Biological and environmental luck and everything that brought into that moment. But this is the thing. We can't get away from this like implicit crypto dualism because <laughs> I, I am the organism. So look, even if whatever the decision that, that has been made for me, that, I'm, <laughs> that I think that I'm illusionally, that I illusionally, it's not really an illusion because like, can I take responsibility for the fact that I am the organism? I mean, there is a space that this takes up <laughs> right here, <laughs> right here, well, and that there are processes happening and, and whatever decisions, you know, that it is part, it is me. It's not part of me. It is me. It is me. And that, that's fine. If you want to define responsibility in the sense of like, I'm the person who caused the atom is making up this pillow to go from there to there. Um, if you want to say the rolling ball is responsible for why all those little like molecules inside keep turning over and over and over and are getting like seasick, yeah, responsibility in this purely instrumental value-free way. But that's not how we use the word responsibility. We use it on deciding if somebody earns their corner office in their corporation, or if they earned their jail sentence, or if they earned on some level not having friends, or if they, it's responsibility that's just like marinated in judgment. And that's the type of responsibility that, you know, is so much worse than simply not making sense. Yeah. I read a lot of Jeffrey Gray, the biologist's work. I don't know how familiar, you probably are quite familiar with Jeffrey Gray's work. It's been been a while, but yeah. Like Creeping Up on the Hard Problem of Consciousness, I think is the best book ever written on consciousness. I'm going to have to maybe talk loud to overcome the chainsaw massacre. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a quote that Jeffrey, you know, Jeffrey Gray tries to cover um, the idea of responsibility. I wanted to read a quote to you. He says, responsibility has to do with the correct functioning of the feedback systems that control an individual's interactions with environmental rewards and punishments. These operate largely unconsciously. The conscious recognition of a decision to act and the ensuing action is my decision and my action comes after the event, but they nonetheless are mine, save for the relatively rare case of illusion or experimental manipulation. Responsibility for instrumental behavior lies with the entire system that is scare quotes me it's unconscious as much as it's conscious part so this is my question based on jeffrey's way of thinking which i tend to agree what's wrong with the way we do things legally which is to say that if if your brain is capable of learning from reward and punishment in a way that falls within the typical range then you a physical organism and cybernetic system not a magical dualistic soul i give you that are responsible for your actions and punishment might retrain you and influence your future behavior whereas if your brain is quote, messed up in such a way that you can't 
learn in a reliable manner, such as you cover schizophrenia in your book, then say you're not responsible. What's wrong with punishment as a tool for learning for the guilty individual and debt and deterrence for everyone else? It's perfectly great. It's, it's, it's a good instrumental tool. We like using it way too much and for all sorts of wrong reasons. But if it's just being used in an instrumental way, that's one of a gazillion things in your armamentarium or whatever. But I think you made a, a critical sign in the line in the sand dichotomy there, dualism, when you said within the normal range. Which is, I think, in many ways, the most reasonable compatibilist approach, which is to say, okay, 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 we recognize there's some edge cases. If the person shows up and they have an IQ of 60, all bets are off. We're going to run the legal system differently with them. And if we, like somebody shows up and they're seven foot four, um, all bets are off on how we assess their like basketball skills because. Yeah, the edge cases, remember, be nice to the kid with dyslexia. It's not their fault that they're not learning how to read. But that's right. where that one's the false dichotomy. You're saying so you're saying, Scott, that that if you're in the normal range, then it's like not yeah, that that somehow the rules apply differently. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, or at least I, yeah. I can I can I can see it through your head of, of how that, that must have sounded. <laughs> but you know, if the normal learning mechanisms are in place. To me, that is an important chain in that causal thing that is you that is causing a change in the world, uh, learning from your mistakes in the past. Yes, you can, if you can't, you know, my friend Sam Harris, you know, is obsessed with the rewind the tape. You know, it's like, it's like he can't <laughs> think of free will as anything else, but the, you know, if you rewind the tape, you won't, can't do differently. But I'm saying, what about the future? <laughs> Humans care not just about a magical time machine that, that we're not going to have in our lifetimes, but people... You know, I take a cybernetic free will perspective, and that's just my perspective. And I contrast that from the magical free will. So, like, I give you, I give you that you made a great, compelling case in your book why a <laughs> lot of people, including a large chunk of capatibus, need to, you know, give that up. <laughs> but I also think that what what humans care about when they care about free will are the kind of cybernetic mechanisms of goal uh, attainment, being able to make. Uh, changes to your uh, subconscious system through conscious effort or intentionality. I know you don't you don't believe that's a thing, but you know my my whole my whole research uh, background is through Herb Simon, you know Carnegie Mellon, and the whole like I mean I was trained from day one to learn about means ends analysis, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like the cybernetic perspectives. So don't you think that cybernetic free will is a free is a free will worth wanting? That's all I'm all I'm arguing here. Absolutely, it would be great. Okay. It doesn't, you're, you're, it doesn't exist. It doesn't no. exist. It doesn't exist. It doesn't you exist. might get be created if it existed. <laughs> the second you can show like the feedback loops of like phosphorylation pathways in your amygdala and every other aspect with which you can explain why somebody who has gone through sexual assault forever after without consciously even realizing it, their heart will beat faster when they're in a space that in some way resembles that, we've just shown that the, the, the notion of us consciously being part of the, the feedback loops and the cybernetics, most of the time, all of the time, even once in a millennium, but all the time are, are not really there. I mean, the second you get someone like, like Jonathan Haidt, 
and he sticks you in a brain scanner and you're making a, a moral decision about some like thought experiment and you can tell what the person is going to decide by looking at their limbic system's activity before you can tell by looking at their frontal cortex. The frontal cortex isn't thinking and choosing. It's doing a post hoc rationalism. When you can actually, like in real time, show, look, 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 the amygdala activated before the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex did, there's no choice going on there. It was, was post hoc stuff. But what I think you're emphasizing this is incredibly like emotionally important thing, which is it's great if we can explain the past. And here's why, like what happened to Hitler when he was still in diapers that explain everything and why, mm. you know, Alexander the Great screwed up after a while, or if you want to be Jared Diamond. Um, but what we really want to do is, as you said, predict the future. That's um, what brains are good at <laughs> some yes. brains, most, most brains, most brains. But where you get into trouble was exactly like the punchline and my, my couple of chapters there are like chaoticism and stuff. There are a whole lot of things that are unpredictable, but are still deterministic. And we've got this huge cognitive bias to decide that if it was unpredictable, some sort of magic happened. If there's no way to tell if A or B caused this, and it's not just because you don't have the good enough of like instruments, to, but it is fundamentally by the nature of the universe impossible to tell if A or B caused this to happen. Maybe nothing caused that to happen. If it could have happened without A and it could have happened without B, maybe it could have happened without both of them and it just happened. And that's mistaking unpredictability for determinism. I mean, that was like the legal system got past that in the 1920s. I, I make reference to the same as law case where two people, separate people did something negligent and both of them started fires that got out of control and the fires happened to converge together and burn down somebody's house. And the court at that time was the very first one that said, you can't get away with the lawyer for fire maker A saying, hey, the house would have burned down even if my guy didn't do it. While lawyer B is saying, hey, the house wouldn't have burned down, saying you can't get away with that. Just because we didn't know which ember was most responsible, yeah, there was causality there, even if there wasn't predictability. And the legal system, like officially, like a case name that law students have to memorize, sorted that one out in the 1920s. But they framed it as statistical guilt. Hmm. Hmm. You can have like- That's actually ten, really interesting. Yeah. And that's kind of how they approached it. It can't be that every single person in the firing squad can say, if I hadn't shot my gun, they would still be dead. So I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything. What I think is more fundamental for us is instead of framing it as there can be such a thing as statistical guilt, that there can be such a thing- as things that are utterly, implicitly unpredictable and never will be, but they're still made out of stuff and stuff that operates with the same rules as the rest of the world. And I think that's where, okay, show me we can predict now. And if you can't, it's because there's, there's some magic dust somewhere along the way. Today's podcast is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back 
as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Today's conversation with Robert really illustrates the importance of expanding the walls of our Perception Box. The Perception Box is the invisible mental box that we all live inside, and it can seriously hinder our ability to understand one another and to understand ourselves. In this episode, Robert sticks to a very specific definition of free will, arguing that we don't have free will because there is no human thought, feeling, or action that is not caused by the accumulation of biological and environmental luck, over which he argues we have no control. But regardless of your own definition of free will, from a perception box perspective, the perception that we have real agency can significantly impact our sense of hope and our ability to reach our goals. Our perception of agency really does matter a great deal, especially in terms of how we respond to how we're feeling inside. It's that response that can greatly expand our perception box and also allow us to see new possibilities for our lives moving forward, despite our past. To find out more about Unlikely Collaborators and the Perception Box, go to unlikelycollaborators.com. Hey man, I'm glad that you you took on the project of showing how silly the magic free will idea is. <laughs> So I, I am really glad, but it's it's just interesting because you go one by one and you say, well, and then you acknowledge for each example, you're like, yes, I, I acknowledge that even this doesn't a hundred percent explain, but then you're kind of like, but if you add it all up, it can't, it can't be, you know, but that's not this equivalent of proof that. <laughs> no. And it, it's not just adding it all up. Look, look how many balls I'm juggling in the air. It's the right, whole point right. that it's all ultimately exactly one seamless continuum of biology interacting with environment, whatever. There's still no proof, but it's at that point that I become like my most infuriating pain in the ass in the book by doing something where like the low rent version of it, philosophers already say that's ridiculous. And I multiply it a zillion fold. Somebody's just done something very consequential. They've behaved, they've pulled a trigger. And like you can identify, here's the four and a half motor neurons that told those muscles to, you know, extend or contract or whatever. And like this philosopher, Alfred Melee, stops after the first step of saying, okay, show me that those four neurons would have done the same exact thing no matter what else all the other neurons in the brain were doing. And he at that point says, that's ridiculous, that's unfair, that's too high of a bar. My view is that isn't even the first baby step because you got to show those neurons would have done the exact same thing no matter whether that person was sleepy, happy, hungry, tired, or whatever in the minutes before, and no matter what their hormone levels were that morning, and no matter what the previous four months had done to their amygdala or hippocampus, and no matter, and no matter, all the way back to, and no matter if we had evolved to be a more polygamous species than we are, or a more monogamous one, because like whatever the savannah was feeding us back when, show me that every single one of those things could be dramatically different. And those four neurons still would have done exactly what they did. And that's it. You've proven free will. You have just shown a spectacularly convincing case of something being a, a causeless cause. And you can't do it. I, I get I get where the thing is stuck here is that it's just you're you're um you're not are you willing to entertain there might be other definitions of free will that might be equally valid from the from the human eye perspective. 
yeah, but pain in the ass now, but they're wrong. Because <laughs> humans, humans are, no, I mean, the organism experiencing the world, you know, has its own sort of, I, I, I just think that the uncaused cause, you know, it's because I agree with you, but I think that confuses the everyday human that's searching for free will. Because I think we do have built into the machinery of, of the human genome, human brains, you know, the, the way that we, the things that make us different than rats, we have a lot, a lot, not as much as we think we have. So I'm with you there and I'm with a lot of um, determinists there, but we have something that um, allows us, you know, even through like mindful, this is what's so interesting. I, I had a, I have a, like a, a four hour debate with Sam Harris on my podcast about very similar <laughs> issues. You and you and him must be friends or something. <laughs> you guys I, have similar ideas. We, yeah. we have different styles, I think, but maybe different styles, but similar. Yeah, but yeah I, I basically agree with everything he has ever said or thought in his life until it comes to like Islam. But anyway, that's, that's a right. whole other story. Then that's a whole other can of worms, but sticking yeah. with the idea of free will, it just seems like his whole project of um, trying to help people practice mindfulness meditation and to be more mindful about your choices and create more of a separation of space between your gut feeling and the way that you act on it in the world. To me, that is a uniquely human capacity that gives us a, a certain form of, of free will, will worth wanting. Uh, do, you, do you disagree with that? Do you not see that? I know how you define free will, but I'm saying you open to to expanding your definition of free will beyond how you currently define it? No, because expanding it, just to get back to, you know, the outcome of all our genes and evolution, all of that is this sense of agency, not expanding it because the science is of why we believe and have such a strong emotional need to believe in free will because the alternative is unpalatable as hell. But okay, so back to meditation. Let's break that down into like, make it mechanistic and okay so you like by breathing in deeply and exhaling slowly you stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system and as a result your vagal nerve makes your locus aurelius be less aroused and as a result your amygdala is silenced by gabaergic interneurons and you secrete less glucocorticoids and, and if you do that a lot all the relevant synapses will show plasticity so that could become a much more effective everyday sort of thing okay that's great because at the bottom of that barrel is you chose to start meditating but or deep breathing but that's exactly where you've just looked at the whole film with the last 3 minutes because you look at two people who have both decided to do that because like the doc told them their blood pressure is getting too high in their family since they're too irritable and they both decide they should do this because they've read it works and all of that. And it just doesn't work for one of them because they can't relax. Why is it they can't relax? Because their genetics plus whatever plus early environment makes for a default mode network that's a little bit too hyperactive for their frontal cortex to tell it stop thinking about the rent stop thinking about like the bills you need to pay and just focus on your breathing or because two people are both equally in need of that and only one of them does it because the other one has no respect for reading and has never read about it or grew up in a way where they hated their parents and they hated their teachers and they as a result are like ornery by by choice against anyone who's telling them anything that supposedly is good for them so screw that it's at every step of the way 
you don't just need to explain how it is the person decided, I want to start doing deep breathing and mindfulness because this is a much better way than like taking beta blockers or something. You need to explain how they found out about that. Why they learn how to read. Not everyone gets that luck. Why do they believe what they read? Why is it that they were capable of extrapolating from this work for the Dalai Lama to doing this extrapolative sort of speculative predicting the future kind of thing of, whoa, maybe it'll work for me. Where'd they get that sense of efficacy? Maybe they're depressed as hell and they say, this could never possibly work for me because they're learned helpless. Okay, where'd that come from? Why don't they wind up having lower blood pressure for mindfulness breathing? Because their serotonin transporter and their trauma and child and all of that made them depression prone and they're less likely to say, wow, I'm going to do that too because that's going to work. Because their proclivity is, nah, I'm a screw up or I will be able to like be disciplined enough or, or where'd that choice come from? <laughs> Yeah. Look, I'm with you. Like it's, you're, you keep explaining to me why there's no magical free will and you don't have to convince me of that. You don't have to convince me of that. There's also no logical free will if you don't allow yourself to stop at the, I decided to do that. I intended yeah. to do that. But you, you know, you have this tendency to, to break something very complex, you know, down into its most like atomic <laughs> parts. And I think, you know, it's an interesting question, you know, when we talk about human qualia, right? How are you going to break that down for me? You know, like the, the emergent property of what it means to be human, that experience. Yes, you could start going and describing to me all the constituent biological parts, but there is a an emergence of the biological organism of the experience of being human. You know, that level of analysis just doesn't really, it's not satisfactory to the organism experiencing the whole gestalt. <laughs> Except every now and then, one of those little biological constituent parts is not so little. Why did this person do this? Whoa, we just found out that they underwent the biological phenomenon of being shuttled from foster home to foster home when they were eight years old and sexually abused in the process. And if you want to reframe the world in my like narrow vocabulary, that was a biological process because it epigenetically screwed up. Its- and that's why they just robbed the liquor store and you growing up with piano lessons in the suburbs did not. Mm. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that's actually a very good reason to uh, show more compassion to even very angry people, you know, or, you know, people that we were supposed to be primed to dislike, you know, and I think that, that, that you make a very good case for why we could use a lot more compassion for each other. So yeah, again, you, you don't have to convince me that we, we uh, don't have magical free will. I guess I'm trying to find a way into this where <laughs> I, I suppose the kind of agency I described, you just simply would not, con- there's no universe in which you're going to conceptualize that as a free will worth wanting. And, and I, I think maybe so, maybe that's just a, <laughs> that's just, I need to accept that. <laughs> where it, It's getting there at the last minute because we've constructed a world where we are willing to judge and punish and reward people based on what they did in the last three minutes. Wow, you helped the old lady cross the street. Wow, you pulled the trigger. And we're perfectly happy to run society on that and make people 
punish, undergo punishment or reward for things they're not responsible for. I mean, in terms of edge cases, we've gotten to the point where we can figure out, okay, okay, um, that hurricane probably wasn't caused by an old toothless woman who lives by herself. And thus we decide that she's a witch. And okay, okay, we've decided what seemed intuitively just obvious 300 years ago, which is... What is that? <laughs> what in the world? What in the world? That, that's, that's our National Geographic clock. On the hour, it makes a different animal sound, <laughs> except years ago, we dropped it. And thus, when it's like the flamingos, we hear the lion roaring and we totally screwed up our kids' zoology sense. But we have to deal with the fact that 300 years ago, people just as smart as us and just as compassionate and just as willing to say, nonetheless, this is the nature of the world, had a very high chance of saying, it's okay for four-year-olds to be worked to death in factories, or some people are meant for slavery, and in fact, you're doing them a favor by doing it because they couldn't take care of themselves. And we now know 300 years later that that isn't the case. And we just have a completely different set of intuitions right now. If somebody like skips the partying in the dorm and studies all night, and as a result, they've got a better GPA than everybody else, we haven't reached the slavery doesn't make sense state of saying, there's a reason why some people party all night and some people, and that's great, make this guy, let this guy be more likely to become a doctor at the other end of it after they graduate, but they didn't earn it. They're not more deserving of their high or low GPA. Yeah, and that's a super interesting argument um, considering my earlier work on redefining intelligence beyond IQ and the kind of structures we have for gifted education and giving certain people access and other people not having access. So I think that's a really, a really interesting and uh, and, and quite quite valid point. I'm trying to think of specific examples to give you, just because I want to see. I really want to see the way the world, the way you see the world, is what I really want to want to do here. Um, so the that way I make I, sure. Yeah. Again, yeah. emphasizing the way I manage with a great deal of effort to see the world about one percent mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. yeah again, fair enough. This isn't fair easy. Enough. So I'm thinking about the case of, um, you know, a person goes on autopilot for for most of their. Um, addiction. Let's say they're addicted to uh, alcohol, and they feel like one day they just woke up and they're like, you know what? Let's say they reached rock bottom, you know, and they're like, yes, um, all these things in my causal chain have led to the moment um, of me hitting rock bottom. But I am making this choice to take the very long, strenuous. It's not that the decision they're making in this moment causes a magic magical change, but it sets off a chain of events. For years to come, it might take years before they get to a point where they feel happier about where they are with this, their relationship with this addiction. Um, so these processes could take a long time, but don't you, certainly you, you would agree there are these, these conscious processes and top-down approaches that can influence the bottom-up aspects, but I suppose you just, you just can't conceptualize that as, as, a, as, a, as a type of free will. Is that right? A type of free will that has occurred independent of all those other influences and has the unprovable capacity to reach down and change the very nature of those components. Well, have some capacity. Yeah, well, it does. It seems to me like it does have some capacity to influence, uh, not completely, but there is, you know, you, you just you make a very strong argument in your book about there being 
zero. You know, I don't view it as all or nothing. <laughs> I view, I see, I, free, I view free will as a continuum, and I actually think that there's a big difference between the coma to the free will that a comatose patient has, the free will that a non-comatose patient, the the, the free will that someone who has the a, a full, you know, set of like a psychopath that uh, this is a mutual interest of both of ours, the science <laughs> neuroscience of psychopaths. You know, I think they have less free will. I would argue in a lot of ways because they their systems for learning about reward and punishment is altered than from someone else. And I think that that, that influences the free will that, that humans care about. Care about, but again, we're at that, that point. The definitions, and, yeah. And if at the end of the day, it's, okay, you want to be able to believe in free will and you're going to find it to be too depressing otherwise or whatever, you know, be happy, your mother and I just want you to do okay in life so you could believe in that. Most you know, if you if you have this very reductive sort of definition, a very large percentage of Earth's misery is caused by our belief that people should be held responsible for things they were not responsible for. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You really aren't a subhuman because you were born into this ethnic group that my culture has decided has no pain sensations for years and years, so it's okay for us to do an Armenian genocide. Or there's really not an explanation why if you have felt lonely your whole life because you have an off-putting personality, like that's a whole other realm in which we run the world on the notion that that type of pain is like logical, that Mm. the person in some way caused that, in some way is responsible. And maybe what we're getting to is, is like this where I sort of try to get to at the end, which is if the notion that there's no free will like depresses the hell out of you because, oh my God, I've got like an Ivy League affiliation and I worked damn hard. I worked, I I could have like become a drug addict because like all sorts of friends from my upper middle class suburb wound up experimenting with ecstasy at some point where I worked incredibly hard or like, do you have any idea how many hours of sleep deprivation I had to endure to become a, a cardiothoracic surgeon or to like remember the homeless aren't they count to and to do something nice for them? Like, if those are the things that you feel bummed out about, if there's no free will, by definition, you're one of the lucky ones. Because what you are facing is the possibility that you did not really earn the things for which you have been rewarded and privileged and gifted. Mm. But for most people, what life is about is it's a world run on myths of this being just. And the pains in your life are due to the fact that you wound up having the wrong variant of this gene, or your face wasn't symmetrical enough, or you were too short, or you were too loud and raucous, or you were too had too much body odor, or your makeup of NMDA glutamate receptors was some that you could never like get a good score on a standardized test. For most people, what you're explaining is it was bad luck. It's not because you have a shitty soul or you lack self-discipline. So in a sense, it's almost by definition, anyone who's going to go out and buy a book, a god-awful long book that's going on about minutia, and they're probably spending a substantial part of their life 
feeling rewarded for things that they had no control over rather than feeling punished or despised or ignored for things they had no control over. So oh, like by definition, I'm writing for the wrong audience because yeah. anyone who would read this book is going to feel bummed out by the notion of it. And for most of humanity who aren't reading the book because like they have no running water and they're in the middle of South Sudan, uh, yeah, they're, they're not going to find out. But for most people on earth, responsibility is the incorrect attribution of things that justify unhappiness in life and unhappiness that we are willing to hand out based on our belief that people had control over things that which they did not. That's most of the human experience. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of my favorite products that helps support my body and mind as I age. On the Psychology Podcast, we frequently talk about forms of wisdom and self-actualization that are often achieved in our 30s and 40s, or even older. But it can be frustrating to finally know what you want out of life, just as you start to lose the mental and physical energy to go get it. A culprit of decreasing energy, slower workout recovery, and general middle-age symptoms that start showing up in our 30s is sentient cell accumulation. Sentient cells are sometimes called zombie cells because they're old, worn-out cells no longer doing their job in our bodies, but they linger on in us after we want them gone, wasting our energy and nutrition. Qualiosenolytic is an amazing formula made by Neurohacker Collective, a company I really trust. I've known the folks at Neurohacker Collective for years now, and they really are thoughtful about what they put into their products, always trying to be as science-informed as possible. Qualia Senolytic combines nine vegan, non-GMO, plant-derived ingredients that help your body eliminate sentient cells. Personally, it helps me operate with the wisdom of a 40-something with the mental and physical energy of a 20-something. The best part is you take Qualia Senolytic just two days a month. It's so easy and so helpful to the human aging process. To try Qualia Senolytic up to 50% off, backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, Go to neurohacker.com and use code psychpodcast15 for an additional 15% off. That's qualiosenolytic for better aging and prime energy deep into life at neurohacker.com slash psychpodcast slash psych15. This is so relevant to politics. You know, you have the left over here arguing that everything is the fault of the system. And then you have the right over here arguing that, er that er people need to take more responsibility for their actions. Both of them are just yelling at each other over both of these extreme perspectives. What is the implication of your view of free will for, for reconciling both of those <laughs> perspectives? <laughs> well, sweep them both out the door. And here I'm I being, yeah. you know, me, me and Sam Harris, we're like so far out on the lunatic fringe of this as you keep coming back to, but none yeah. whatsoever, come on, none. It's the only possible logical extension if you take things to where it takes you. But where does this apply? I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I, I See, know. you say that so confidently. You say that so confidently. I say it so <laughs> yeah. confidently because yeah. it's true yeah. and I can't function with it 99% of the time. So okay. like, okay. I understand that. But what does this do to everything? The interesting thing is, not only does it make it seem like a totally radical thing, the criminal justice system makes no sense whatsoever and has to be totally gotten rid of. Fortunately, we could still run society in a way so the dangerous people aren't 
dangerous. We can keep them from being dangerous, but don't preach them about how they have a terrible soul or temperament. Like, whoa, the whole criminal justice system needs to be thrown out. Equally so, the entire system of meritocracy has to be thrown out because that makes as little sense. Yeah, make make sure your neurosurgeon is like competent that they've actually learned like how to do their thing. Like keep us safe from murderers running around on the street and keep us safe from neurosurgeons who were picked randomly because after all, none of us deserve. Nonetheless, both make no sense whatsoever. And there's something terribly wrong if the end product of it is neurosurgeons or any of the rest of us who would listen to something like this feel like we have earned a higher consideration of our needs and well-being than any other person out there. Yeah, there's a humbling, there's a humbling spirit to what you're saying, and I, I like that. I do. I, I really like that spirit. I think that there's so many deep implications of this. You know, the question of who is responsible for any outcome. You know, because usually most no outcomes just the causal factor is just one organism. <laughs> so, you know, you had me thinking earlier about this idea of statistical guilt. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Yeah. I, ca I can't stop thinking about that because it's the first time I heard that phrase, but I think it's so interesting because there's some interesting research um, talking about in codependent relationships, whose fault is it? <laughs> and, and, and the reality is that it's both their faults. I mean, faults, yes. the, and even the word fault is interesting here because what gets tricky is people say, don't victim blame, you know, don't victim blame by saying that the, the one victim, you know, the viewing the world as though there's always in every situation, one victim and one perpetrator as though like there can't be two perpetrators at the same time as though there can't be two victims at the same, you know, but yep. the emergent sort of explanation, statist statistical guilt, I love that. I'm going to be using that a lot now <laughs> is that, you know, the thing about statistical guilt is that's not victim blaming, right? But it's, it's, but it is being honest that there are a lot of, it's a system of, of factors that um, have come together to predict a hundred percent accuracy. If we knew, if we were well, Mark's demon, <laughs> you know, <laughs> predict that, 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 that these two would be fighting <laughs> in this relationship. <laughs> but to say that it's entirely the husband's fault and 0%, it's like it, it, from your, from this perspective, does it seem that it doesn't break, it breaks down that sort of way of thinking, right? Oh, completely. Yeah. But what it also gets you to is it's not both of their faults. It's not both of the, and it's not both of the perpetrators faults and it's not the overachievers wondrousness. Like it just hopscotches over all of this stuff because a lot of that is premised on the notion that we're trying to figure out a fair way of distributing responsibility. And oh, sometimes it's, yeah, I know. This is tr this is tricky because you know the Republicans they love to call people who don't succeed lazy, right? So so the opposite end of taking credit is you know uh, blaming uh, the lack of uh, achievement for under for laziness, right? And well, you're saying you can't, you can't, you know, have someone take credit for achieving, but you also can't have someone, you know, call them a loser because they didn't succeed. And at the same time, like our nice stereotypical leftists are just as incorrect when they're saying, and this person who has just like spent two years volunteering for Doctors Without Borders has a tremendous capacity for empathy. That makes us it's good. It's good they turned out that way and do what's they needed. They can't take credit to, for having that empathy. But 
they're not a better person or a worse person because of it. And they shouldn't have like a higher likelihood of having access to a vaccine that will stop a pandemic caused virus. They didn't earn it. It's so interesting. I, I really am trying very hard to see the world through your eyes <laughs> and think through the, the logical implications of it, because I think there is like, I think there's so much great uh, grains, uh, so much truth here. And I think about, but I'm not like hundred percent with you. You know, I think about grit and your whole chapter on grit. And the, this is a, this is a trait I've studied with Angela Duckworth and, you know, and I, and one, one big myth is that, well, IQ can't be changed, but grit can be changed much more than IQ. That, that one I argue, I tell people, what the hell are you talking about? Both grit and IQ have about the same heritability coefficient. I mean, there's, there's no evidence suggesting that one of the traits is more malleable than the other. But they always say intelligence you can't change, but you could change. So I think we're 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 agreement on that pet peeve, right? But but <laughs> um, you know the thing if I if I if the I being the, this organism here decides to expend effort against what it wants to, you know it doesn't feel it right. Like I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like going to the gym, you know, but I fight against that that motivation. And even if it's causing my organism pain to make it to the gym, I exert the effort, you know, the time on task that makes me more likely that tomorrow I might be more likely actually to wake up being more motivated to go to the gym. See, I view that as a, as an important form of human cybernetic free will, but I guess you don't. (laughs) Yeah. You can't take credit for why you of got a frontal cortex okay. as more self-disciplined than that of the person next to you because it had something to do starting with like your mother's socioeconomic status when you were a fetus. That's not a big explanatory part of it, but all of it together, you didn't choose to have a frontal cortex that's better at ignoring dopaminergic anticipatory stuff saying, let's go do something fun instead. But you don't think you, can, you can't give complete credit. You can't give like an A plus credit for it. I agree. <laughs> but you, but you saying zero, zero. So there's like no uh, credit you're willing to give that organism for deciding to overcome its uh, inertia in that moment to put you on a better path for self-development in the future. See, you don't, you don't, I, I would give credit to an organism for doing that. I probably would. But would you thus blame an organism that decides to do that and can't pull it off? Would you decide they weren't That's serious? controversial. <laughs> they don't have self-discipline. They, it's the same thing. I, you framed, oh, it's false dichotomy between like emotional intelligence and IQ or-, or IQ and the, grit. Or, or IQ and grit, grit or, yeah. And, yeah, it's a, yeah. and you can show that in terms of heritability stuff. I would take sort of a larger way of saying the exact same thing Grit and self-discipline or lack of and all of that is made out of the same stuff as the rest of the universe, is made out of the same stuff as why you're faster at answering questions on Jeopardy than the next person. It's made of the same, like it's not fairy dust. It's made of atoms and it's the same pathways that not only give us better or worse natural attributes, it's the same pathways that then determine whether we take advantage of them or squander them or or like never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity or get mm-hmm. our nose to the grind. It's the same stuff. 
Yeah. I really hope we're not talking past each other because I find myself <laughs> listening to you and I find myself listening to you and agreeing with you and then making a point that disagrees with you. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. but I but I actually agree with what you're saying. You know, our actions have consequences on the world, obviously. Okay. And our thoughts don't necessarily have direct consequences on the world. Um, some people have argued that our free will is in that free won't, is in that, you know, our ability to inhibit our, our impulses and 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 some of that is we have some uniquely human capacities for that kind of um, putting the the brakes on. You know, li lions don't seem to have as good of a capacity to put the brakes on as some humans. Some some humans are worse than some lions. But anyway, uh, but we but, really yeah. don't want to understand why we're less likely to predate the old woman crossing the street than would a lion. We're not interested in like why we think and redwood trees and crabgrass don't. We're trying to make sense within species, and sure, that forces sure. us back into this this realm. Mm. Yeah, I I think that's what what affords us by viewing free will as a continuum, you know, and and being able and giving people the uh, the hope and optimism that they can make changes in their lives that fundamentally change their agency in ways that give us a free will with wanting that the organism would cares about, but. Uh, I guess you don't see it that way. <laughs> no. And like, I'm going to get off this and my wife is going to say, how was yeah. it? And I was going to say, oh, it was a total blast. Totally fun guy to talk with. And as a result of that, if I know that you're in the car that's trying to merge in the lane in front of me three and a half years from now, I'm more likely to get let you merge in. And if we went on a mammoth hunt together, I would mm -hmm. like make sure you got the best piece first because, well, totally fun talking with this guy. He was great. But you don't deserve to get to merge I in more do. than anybody else or get the bigger piece of mammoth meat. It's not by chance it's, that you wound up this way. And it's not by yeah. chance that I wound up valuing you being this way. And like, it's just down from there. I think that's what that's there's something really fundamentally uh gets really emotional about this that I want to take out of it because you know <laughs> so my personal history just really quick like I no one believed in my potential for anything when I was a kid I was in special education for a learning disability in auditory and they all thought I was dumb and I decided again and I, you were rethinking the word decide here today but I decided in ninth grade that I didn't want to be a victim of the system anymore that I didn't want to I didn't want people to just view me as uh, one dimensional uh, through my lens of my learning disability and I really made a lot of efforts to um, take myself out of special education learn I studied extra hard like maybe I was not gifted with the genetic genes that make learning easy but I really put in a lot of effort to to learn better. Now, so it's an interesting question. To this day, do I take, Yeah, because I, I do, like obviously uh, I, I'm like, yeah, I take some credit for, you know, and it's called the hero's journey, right? But you're kind of smacking down the hero's journey. You're saying, you're, you're like taking the hero's journey and you're saying, stop it. <laughs> you don't, exactly. you, don't, you just, if, you're, you're, you had no free will in constru even constructing that narrative. <laughs> yes. And it's I know what you're saying. It's a bummer for you because when you decided, it worked, and it's not yeah. a it's it's yeah. not a bummer for somebody where you explain why it is that even though they decided and they knew this is my only hope for a happier life, it didn't mm. work. Mm. They're not less deserving than less you deserving consideration or any of that, and like just as a, one of the with those four neurons, I've done the exact same thing. If you had, by sheer random luck, 
been raised in, I don't know, Tehran or so with parents who were Ayatollahs, they would have said, this is your fate because you have a bad soul or, or you were cursed with this inability to learn how to read well because you did something terribly well. I don't know, if you're born in the middle of Biloxi, Mississippi, you could very readily have parents who have that same attributional system. And you would never have said, hey, I'm going to start trying to pay attention more. And before you know it, I'm going to like have a podcast someday. Just that one thing, your, your neurons would have done something different three and a half minutes ago. Yeah, I have a lot of empathy for what you're saying. I, I I like that. Look, I like the spirit of what you just said. But I also think that there's a certain free will in us trying to help people who don't have those advantages. I mean, there's a reason why you know I wrote this book, Supporting Creative Students with Learning Difficulties, because there's science showing that there's things we can do to take people who have had unfortunate circumstances and give them greater opportunities to be in a position to have the free will worth wanting, is what I'm saying. But I guess you just don't see it that way. And um, and I, I, part of me today is just wanting to really understand the way you see the world so that yeah. I can see what I think. What do I even think? I'm, I'm open to changing my thoughts, you know? <laughs> well, I guess I have no choice in that matter, according to you, but... <laughs> I mean, like one, of my, one of my heroes, Wilmer Rudolph. Wilmer Rudolph in like 1960 was the fastest human woman alive and she got like umpteen gold medals. So she's like, and she grew up as one of 22 children of a sharecropper in Tennessee and had polio. She was in leg braces until she decided at some point in adolescence that I'm going to overcome this. And she's the fastest woman I've had. Oh my God, she! I so admire her. And that is so, so, so wrong. It's a good thing though, if in part as a result of admiring her, I internalize and say, wow, maybe I can be more accomplished or show more discipline. It's a crappy thing if I decide that thus she is more deserving of being left on the lifeboat than somebody mm. else. Yeah. And that's about your merit. So what's the alternative to meritocracy as you see it? Let competent people do the things that, do, that require their sort of competence. Let dangerous people be in a position where they can't be dangerous, but- it shouldn't be all that different from if your kid is sneezing a lot, keep them home from kindergarten that day. They can still play with their toys and you still tell them you love them to bits. They're just sneezing. So let's make sure that they can't like damage the world with their sneezing propensities and try to deal with this like sneezing wave that's ruining society by getting tough on sneezers. You know, it protect us from stuff, have competent people doing the things we need to have done competently. And maybe if you really need to motivate them, it's okay for you to say, good job, nice going, or maybe give them a better salary than everyone else or, or resources to do more of what it is that they're good at, but right. not because they earned to have earned their it. needs be more worthy of consideration than that of any other human. I like that. And that's, and that's the only possible outcome. And I can't do it. I can't think that way almost all the time. So yeah, it seems totally crazy and impossible, but it's got to be. I, I remember you gave a talk at the Learning in Brain 
or no, not learning break. There was some education conference I'm blanking on. We, we have a picture together. I can send it to you. <laughs> we took, and I was like, I came up to you. I was like, I'm such a big fan of yours. <laughs> so I, and I realized that we have similar views about education. So could it be that one of the implications of this is moving away? You said meritocracy, but also I would just say such a, uh, such a standardized testing obsessed culture um, where we reward with, you know, the ability to, to get entrance into universities to be able to get jobs, you know, how they performed on these tests, which there, are, there is a substantial genetic component to, uh, I mean, we've published data on this, um, on the, the, you know, predicting the G factor of, of standardized achievement test scores, you know, and uh, that's controversial to say that in some circles, but it's relevant to this conversation. I've argued for more of a self-actualization focused education system where we, we, we really honor each the sacredness of each individual child's journey, you know? And I guess you would just say well, that journey is, is, is not freely chosen. And, and it's, maybe that's just like a, a, almost irrelevant then to the practical thing. But I think we probably both agree on the, pra- you know, the free will thing aside uh, uh, that we need a major shift in our education system. Yeah. And not just recognizing that two people get different SAT scores, and it's got something to do with their genes over which they had no control. But just as documentably, um, it has something to do with the fact that they grew up in a neighborhood with far, far more liquor stores than, than grocery stores that sold fresh food. That's a pretty gate-break predictor of someone who's going to be antisocial in some of their behaviors by the time they're 20. Yeah, all of that stuff. So if you take two people, you take two kids, one has a knack for learning, comes very easy and they never have to do their homework ever. Very rarely do they need to read the book and they ace all the tests. You take person two, child two, who is, struggles so much, but decides they're going to put in 50 times the effort, et cetera. You would say that child two does not deserve any more credit than child one is what you would argue, right? Even though every, every itch of our instinct Tells us exactly to give more to do. Yeah. We're we're educators, and oh, the the one who like works their way up and Horatio Alger and pull yourself up on your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. like the most egregiously illogical thing I do in my sleep. I mean, if that child is their organism, though, yeah, they. I feel like the the organism can, can take. I guess the question is, what does it mean to take credit for something? You can't say that like, well, that was that other organism that uh, that did it. Certainly, it is this organism that did it. So in one sense, you can take credit, but in another sense, you shouldn't take too much credit. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's like that, that great John Searles quote that I have somewhere in the book, Berkeley Philosopher, where he says, so what am I supposed to do? I go into a restaurant and the waiter comes up and wants me to order. And I say, well, I'm a determinist. So I'm just going to lean back and see what I order. It can't work that way. It, it's inseparable. You're not a fatalist. You're not a fatalist. No, because that's like the two biggest things is, oh, efforts and tenacity or lack thereof is a different flavor of thing than your natural attributes. And the other one is if we have no free will, that means everything is, is nothing can change. Nothing can change. And it's anything that, and when you look at the mechanisms by which like change happens, by which someone who was a whatever and is now an ex-white supremacist or whatever or any any it's the same it's a mechanistic explanation mm, beautiful i'll end here today 
even though you know we we have quibbles on definitions <laughs> of of what what we want to include under free will. I'll, re- I'll read a tweet uh, that I wrote uh, a couple years ago that even Sam Harris agreed with, and I, I feel like you, you're. I think we'll, we'll. I think we'll both we'll both end on this agreement. Well, I could be wrong. Even <laughs> though we probably don't have ultimate free will, and that's really what your book tackles, in my opinion, is ultimate free will. We have witness consciousness. You literally have a front row seat to the unfolding of your life story. That's reason enough to stick around. Your life story is sure to have twists and turns you you could never have predicted. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's one reason to stick around and to enjoy the preciousness of human existence. Because no matter how much we're made out of atoms, you know, the right kind of music is still like the greatest thing ever. And you can't take that human experience away from us. <laughs> you know, it, it's still, it's still a transcendent experiences make life worth living in a lot of ways. Yep. Thank you, Robert, so much for being my podcast. This is a sign of respect for you that I asked you so many uh, challenging questions because I usually am not disengaged. I'm usually not disengaged (laughs) with my guests. (laughs) So I have such deep respect for you. That's what this shows. (laughs) That's great. Well, this this has been a total blast. Any any time you want to arm wrestle some more, this was (laughs) sounds good. This was fun. Thanks. I love it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P dot com. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.